Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Rosalie David for a conversation about the mummy and life of Takabuti, a woman that lived in ancient Egypt, and her mummy was later discovered. And Dr. David joins the show to speak more about what's known of the mummy and the life that this woman lived. Dr. David is Emeritus Professor of Egyptology at the University of Manchester, based in the UK. She has written many publications over her career, including a book that's germane to this topic, Life and Times of Takabuti in Ancient Egypt, Investigating the Belfast Mummy, which was published by Liverpool University Press. Welcome to the call, Rosalie. Hello. <laughs> okay, so let's start with uh, a broad question, but an important one. Who was Takabuti? Takabuti was a woman who lived in ancient Egypt um, around 700 BCE, so two and a half more thousand years ago. Um, she lived at a place called Thebes, uh, which is the modern day town of Luxor in Egypt. And um, she ended up uh, in the Ulster Museum in Belfast in Northern Ireland. Uh, and she's been in the museum there ever since. So this is how we encountered the mummy and the associated coffin. And we've carried out with our colleagues in Belfast uh, a whole project of work on her, which has been going on really since um, uh, 2008. And then another session, another phase 2018 to 2020. Okay, and uh, so to, to so to a point of clarification, I, I don't know if it was um, mentioned or not, but we got to tackle it in more de in depth, anyways. Um, was was it a mummy that was found? Can you speak about what was actually found, even you know, including the coffin? What was actually dis discovered? Well, the mummy and the coffin were purchased by uh, a young Irish uh, man. Uh, with a um, lot of money, he travelled to the uh, Middle East, to the Mediterranean, I believe, but he bought uh, a mummy and a coffin uh, in Luxor as, as a, um, a tourist. And he had that sent back uh, to Belfast, so the mummy arrived back eventually by sea uh, into Belfast in Northern Ireland. So the mummy comes from, um, uh, from the Luxor area, uh, it has no what we call provenance. We don't know exactly uh, if it where the tomb was, um, uh, where it was located. We have mm. none of that information. What we do have is the mummy. And the mummy was unwrapped in uh, 1835 in, in Belfast. And we have the associated coffin. And the coffin is inscribed with hieroglyphs. And the hieroglyphs give us the background information about the mummy, a name, um, what her titles and status were, who her parents were. And we assume that she lived in Thebes from that because uh, this is why it was, was sold uh, in the 19th century in, in Luxor. But that's as far as our information goes. Okay, one of my questions was, where does the name come from? So your your answer, th thank you, uh, you, men you mentioned that. So how common uh and i'm going to ask more about 
um, the in, like the inscriptions, the the writings that that was associated to her um, coffin, because that's pertinent to this conversation. How common was it in this region, or perhaps you can answer from Egypt in general uh, more broadly? How common was it for um, people to be mummified? And obviously, we all know people at times are mummified, so that's not quite the question. But just how common? How common was it? Well, there's something in ancient Egypt called <clears throat> natural mummification. Uh, the bodies were buried in the desert on the edge of the cultivation, and uh, the desert is hot and dry, and so it naturally desiccates the body. And that happened going right back to probably before 3100 BC. But they then began to build tombs, and uh, the tombs... Uh, were no longer surrounding the body with warm, dry sand. So the bodies began to deteriorate. So to overcome this, they brought in a technique we call intentional mummification. And it's a chemical process. They um, uh, eviscerated the body, took the internal organs out, and, and then they dried it. They dehydrated it using a substance called natron, which is a naturally occurring salt compound which is found in Egypt and that dried out the body but it's quite a lengthy sophisticated process so you end up with two levels of mummification the natural which applied to everybody was buried in the sand but then this conscious method and that would be applicable at first to the royalty then increasingly to the the upper classes and even the middle classes so Takabuti would fall into that group. And I mean, it's, it's difficult to estimate, but probably um, not more than perhaps 20% of the population were ever mummified in this intentional way. The bulk of the population were always naturally preserved in, in the sand. Okay, okay, thank you. Um, is it believed that she was part of uh, from a family perspective, part of the 25th dynasty? If not, is it believed that she was uh, an aristocrat? Can you speak more about what's known about her familial ties? Yes, Takabuti um, was not a Kushite, so she was not a member of the royal family. But the coffin inscriptions uh, say that she had the title uh, lady or mistress of the house and noblewoman. So that meant that she was of the middle to upper classes uh, of the time. Um, there's information about her parents, again, on the coffin. Her father was called uh, Nespare, and he was a priest of the god Amun. Uh, now, Amun had a great temple in Thebes, uh, the Temple of Karnak. Uh, and it's very likely that he was a priest in that particular temple. Her mother's name was Tas N. Irit. Uh, we don't know anything more about her. But um, Takabuti probably grew up as the daughter of quite a comfortable, wealthy family uh, in the environment of Thebes. Her father probably worked at this major temple. And so she would have had... Um, um, a comfortable upbringing and then probably married uh, into the same class and then set up uh, this household because having the title mistress of the house meant that she was um, in charge of uh, a substantial domestic setup. 
What's significant about this find from a scholarly perspective? You mentioned 20% approximately of Egyptians would have been intentionally mummified. Um, I got that term right, intentionally mummified? Yeah. Um, yeah, what's significant about this particular find? Well, this particular find is, is one of um, quite a number that were bought and brought back to various countries um, in, in Britain, Europe or America. Um, the interesting thing about this particular mummy is the period in which she lived, but also the fact that she was unwrapped and examined scientifically and medically in 1835. So we've been able to compare our investigation, the kind of techniques available to us today mm -hmm. with that initial uh, study and really to take it onto a whole new level of of, of information and there are various things that have come out of our scientific uh, examination which are really um, uh, very exciting about her individually but also about the broader historical period I think. Okay and I'm going to ask what those items were that that uh, is, is exciting uh, but I want to go back to and this is this is a, a simple question for an Egyptologist but someone uh, new to an Egypt history type conversation may not know the answer of what what was the purpose why did ancient Egyptians mummify people the ancient Egyptians mummified people so that they believed that at death the soul departed and hopefully would go on into the afterlife which was situated, they believe, below the Western horizon uh, in, the, in the underworld. So what they hoped would happen was that the soul would be able to come back and utilise the preserved body, which it would recognise, uh, and then to partake of the food offerings that the family uh, and the, the priests brought to the tomb. So they believe that the individual needed ongoing uh, food and drink throughout eternity brought to the tomb. And the mummy, if you like, was the link between this world and the next world uh, in ensuring mm. that the, the dead person in the, in the afterlife was, uh, had sufficient food and water uh, and was able to go on living. Okay. Uh, th thank you. Yeah. And that part... You know, part of asking that question was for me, too. I wanted to be clear. Um, okay, so, so Ian, was that part of that then? Was it was a critical uh, way, the, the paradigm at that time, was it about preservation? Was it about preserving the body then? That's why the, the, uh, the bodies were mummified? Yes, it was about preserving the body in as complete form as possible um, so that the person would have this... Um, the significant uh, uh, ability to continue in the next world. Okay, okay. So can you speak more about the inscriptions then and what, what do you find exciting about what was discovered? Well, the name Takabuti is, it's the only one, uh, the only time um, I or other Egyptologists I've consulted have found this name in Egyptian inscription so we don't really know uh, what it is or where it comes from it's probably a foreign name but it's not possible to identify at the moment where where it's from 
But in our examination of the uh, of the mummy, um, there was some very interesting evidence from the the DNA studies uh, about her ethnicity and background, and there's some really very interesting information from the pathology about uh, the way in which she died. And then there's another technique which is called proteomics, which is the first time this has ever been used on Egyptian mummies. In modern patients, it's a way of determining disease, all sorts of disease in, in, the, in the body mm. of a patient. And it's been possible on this to, um, to apply this to mummified tissue. So going forward, it offers huge potential for identifying uh, disease of all sorts in mummified remains. Do you know as a, as a scholar how she died? Yes, um, the, the evidence from the CAT scans and the interpretation of the CAT scans um, is that she was stabbed in the back with what was probably an axe. And we've done studies on the different kind of weapons that would have been available um, uh, from the shape and size of the wound. So it's most likely to have been an axe. So this would rule out um, probably domestic violence and indicates that it would would have been used by a soldier, military um, uh, intervention. Hmm. Uh, from the position of the wound, it's possible to see that she was stabbed from behind from slightly above. So somebody running after her and putting the axe into the, uh, into the back. And the evidence from the proteomics, which was done on um, muscle tissue uh, in the leg, uh, shows that she was um, running or moving fast. So you can actually recreate the scenario of her death, which almost certainly is murder um, by means of an axe with the assailant running after her. You then get onto the question as to whether it was um, uh, local Egyptian soldiery or whether it was the Assyrians um, coming in with their siege of the city. So did she die in these dreadful circumstances uh, of, the, of the time? So that is something that doesn't come from anything other than the uh, investigations we've been able to do. You wouldn't have known if you just had the mummy and the coffin that these were the events of her uh, the end of her life. I understand. What is inferred, uh, and if it's known by all means, but uh, if it's if it's speculation, what what's what's in what what's speculated about how she got mummified? Then, because you said it's it's very likely that she was murdered. H how do you think? Again, if 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 you if if we know for certain, that's great. But but if not, how do you think that she would have got into a mummified? Uh, form afterwards well it's very interesting because in in the wound at the back of her at the back of her rib cage there's a plug of linen so there was obviously an attempt either when she was dying um, or at the time when she was being mummified to try and make this as complete as possible going this back to this idea of making the body as 
perfect as possible. I mean, I can only speculate, but I imagine her family were devastated by her death. And she came from um, a, a well-to-do family, so they would have had the means to go to the embalmer with the body and have the, the, the mummy uh, made. Uh, and then she would have had a coffin with the inscriptional evidence painted on about her family and her background. And she would have had what, to all intents and purposes, was a normal mummification and burial. But it's when you dig deeper using these techniques mm. that you get the detail of what actually happened. Um, I think you might have mentioned it um, earlier, but I want to I want to clarify the actual place is not known where the coffin has been for centuries. Is that correct? It's correct, yes. Uh, we don't know where the mummy and coffin actually came from because they were bought in Luxor, which was is the modern town where ancient Thebes was. Um, we speculate, I think, accurately that uh, the mummy and coffin were from the, uh, the, the area. So she was very probably buried on the west bank of the river um, many burials from the 25th dynasty are in the vicinity of the temple of Queen Hatshepsut at Der al-Bahri. So somewhere in that area, we speculate that the tomb would have been, but there's no evidence on that at all. Yeah, okay. You mentioned earlier, I believe you mentioned um, some stuff maybe known about her father. Um, is anything known about uh, a marriage or marriages that she may have had uh, children she may have had, whether within the coffin itself with the inscriptions or periphery-type evidence? There's no information uh, in the coffin inscriptions um, about her marriage or her children. But as she has the title Mistress of the House, uh, that implies that she was married and uh, was um, supervising a, 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 su a substantial domestic uh, setup. Um, the norm on coffin inscriptions is to give the names of the parents and also to say whether or not they were deceased at the time of the person's death. But that is the normal way of doing it. So you don't get any information beyond that. And again, we don't know anything about whether whether she had children. Okay. Now, you mentioned the, uh, the unwrapping first occurred uh, uh, in 1835. So is, is that significant? And it sounded like that was significant to scholars that you can you, more work happen more, in more contemporary terms and you're doing this comparison to the 19th century. Can you speak more about that, that process then and why that's significant and, and exciting to uh, an Egyptologist? Well, many of the procedures that were available, of course, um, at the first investigation, um, they include. They didn't include radiology or CAT scanning. Um, they certainly didn't include any of the histological or molecular techniques that are available to us today. So they they did um, uh, a survey of the body, a sort of hands-on exploration of what the evidence was from the um, from the the mummy, uh, and they looked at her teeth. Uh, and uh, they looked at her hair. And just to give you an example of a technique, which, of course, no longer would be used anywhere, they used something called phrenology, which was to examine the bumps on the head. And uh, they came up with the conclusion that she was um, 
uh, bright and intelligent, but a woman of no taste. So, of course, that is a completely bizarre scientific investigation uh, in the early, uh, in the 1830s. But today we've been able to add so much more, of course, um, cat scanning the body, uh, looking at the tissue samples um, for evidence of, of, of disease, uh, looking at it in terms of ancient DNA. Uh, we've also been able to look at the teeth uh, by means of x-rays now instead of just seeing them in the mouth um, there's been an analysis of the hair so we mm. know um, uh, that the hair was a natural blonde red which is unusual mm. and that she had some um, hair product a sort of gel to keep the curls in a hairstyle in, in place um, so a whole mass of information is now forthcoming which would simply not be around in the 19th century okay i got a, i got a question about this hair gel do scholars have do scholars know what the material of the actual gel was well they've 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 done an analysis which is in the book of uh the it's a sort of fatty mm. material in in simple terms uh which would be designed to hold the, the hair which was in a curls hold it in place mm. now whether it was from when she was alive or whether that was done at death uh, we can't tell but the unusual thing about this mummy is that most um, uh, ancient Egyptians their heads were shaven and then they wore wigs on mm. on top when they went out or when they entertained at home but Takabuti had this really unusual uh, color hair blonde red and uh, she obviously didn't shave her hair because the hair's all there and it it would have been quite long and she would have worn it in this quite elaborate um hairstyle uh so that makes her quite special in a way what does a scholar an egyptologist infer from that so if if most egypt egyptians in that period shaved their head and then you come across one that grew their hair what what do you infer what do you infer from that well, one thing you can infer, I think, is that for whatever reason, she was very pleased and proud of her own hair. And mm. since it was an unusual colour, this would probably be the, the case. So in a sense, she's making a statement, isn't she, about her hair. But the other point to remember, of course, is that um, many mummies remain wrapped. So you don't get to see their head or their hair so we don't have a huge amount of evidence we speculate that all the heads were shaved and that they wore these wigs but there may well be other examples where um, they followed the same pattern that she did okay um you mentioned the the gel was a fatty substance it is it presumed that's an oil is that is that one of the ingredients or something else do you think uh well it's, it's um it's okay if you got a yeah. It's okay if you got to look look it up yeah, quick. I will have to look at them. Yeah, you can, these aren't pre-scripted <laughs> questions. I just want to get this right for you. So. Yeah, thank you. And this is a good opportunity to plug your uh, book as well. If anybody wants to understand the the substances of the hair gel, amongst many other things on this topic. Uh, life and times of Takabuti in ancient Egypt. <laughs> she had on her hair, it's um, a sticky or soft 
composition, like um, a fat-based substance. So um, it, it was really a, a setting gel, I suppose, in, in this way. But there is in the book an analysis of the, um, uh, the ingredients mm. in this. Uh, and um, it's, it's quite interesting to find that they were doing this at the time of, uh, at the time of death or just before. Yeah, I asked uh, part, partly why I asked that qu question. And I actually, probably a lot of people knew this. I didn't know this until about a year ago because someone just mentioned it to me um, kind of randomly. But you can, make, uh, you can make things like soaps and stuff out of olive oil. And we're in the we're in the Mediterranean basin, right? So I was wondering if yes. it if it had something to do with the uh, right, like a certain oil, like an olive yes. oil. <laughs> yes, yes, it's, it's um, so yeah. Um, so that that would be it. Um, she had one head louse, uh, mm -hmm. or knit egg, um, but otherwise it was it was in good state. Um, Okay. Yeah, she sounds like she had exceptional hair. Yes, it's it's very impressive. Again, you can see in the book, uh, it's quite elaborate. Mm-hmm. Okay. The actual... Book, I mean... Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, Rosalie. Well, well that sort of colouring on hair is very unusual, but of course, Ramesses II, the great king of Egypt in the 19th dynasty, he was also a natural um, golden redhead. So you do get examples of it, but it's it's not the norm. What was the actual coffin made of for material? The material of the coffin was uh, cedar wood. And it would then be plastered and um, painted with the decoration. And of course, cedars were mainly imported into Egypt uh, from the region that is known today as Lebanon, uh, and they were used for large wooden items such as coffins because Egypt had relatively little or relatively poor wood, so they had to bring it in from outside. So again, with, with coffins, it's an indication that you were of quite a high status to be able to afford uh, to have a coffin. Do you get any sense of... Um... Obviously, we won't we won't know the exact supplier that supplied the wood, right? But uh, for this for this coffin, but do you get a sense of the like the region that it was it was um, probably would have come from if it's cedar wood? Like, was it in the Levant somewhere? Would it have been in uh, more to the west? Any sense of that? There's no identification of exactly where it came from. Um, presumably, you could take that further with studies on the wood, but it certainly would be from the. The region of the Levant from from the Lebanon sort of region and okay. of course they brought them in for um, sort of large items such as doors or coffins uh, where there would be a need of large plants basically but it's very interesting in the mm -hmm. packing material uh, inside the mummy uh, that again has been studied um, using uh, various um, uh, techniques electromicroscopy techniques and uh, fragments of cedar have been found in the packing material from inside the mummy mm. so this suggests uh, that perhaps they use the debris from the coffin manufacture uh, as um, a sort of infill so you know they didn't let anything go to waste 
they would have had the uh, the debris from the coffins available for making the the packing of the mummy. So you can imagine almost a sort of uh, chain of, of, of a workshop where you're producing the coffins and going through to working on the mummy. They'd all have been associated together. Okay, that's interesting um, and very resource, resourceful as, as well. Um, is it uh, those type of suppliers, um, would those have been in, in Egypt that would make coffins that, that the actual suppliers weren't in other territories, right? For, for yeah, that and importing it in, like... Yeah, yeah the, um, uh, it would be imported, obviously, into Egypt. But the people making the coffins and all the packing for the mummy, all the bits of the mummy, they were located in Egypt and almost certainly locally to where she lived and died. And um, there is some evidence that different styles of coffins uh, not only differ because of the period when they were being made, but also from the different localities within Egypt. So I think ultimately, if enough information could be brought together, you could find workshops, specific workshops, producing particular kinds of decoration on the coffins, you know, a bit like pottery workshops where you get a particular style coming out. But it was big business. I mean, mm. if you imagine uh, a whole production unit um, bringing out mummies and coffins, it's a, it's a massive uh, industry in ancient Egypt. Thank you for understanding my question perfectly well, <laughs> because I didn't want to leave anyone thinking that um, mummy uh, uh, coffins in Egypt were being imported in from from elsewhere. So I wanted to get that question across. But it's believed. Yes. But it's believed that the cedar wood was was yes. imported in. Yes. Okay, that's that's great. Very intuitive of you, Rosalie. Thank you. <laughs> um, can you describe then the decoration on the coffin in the best way that you you could? Obviously, it's easy to look at something, but since this is a audio uh, format, can you can you describe the the decoration and what you know or speculate the uh, the artist or artists uh, were getting at when they created the decorations? I'll start at the head and the face. Uh, the coffins were not personalized. They were mass produced. So they all have the same kind of face, basically, um, representing the, the ideal of good looks or beauty at that particular time. Uh, the head is covered with, with a, a, a wig carved in the wood. Uh, and then if you move down onto the body, there's usually uh, a necklace represented in painting on the wood. And then a series of um, horizontal bands and panels. And these are where the inscriptions go, which give you the information I've been talking about. And then they have figures of gods, different deities, male and female. And these were there to protect the dead person because the coffin has to be seen as the, the kind of protective unit for the mummy inside. It protected it from obviously damage, but also from external evil forces. And then there is usually a scene by this period showing the day of judgment. Now, it was believed that every individual on death uh, came to their day of judgment and they were judged uh, by um, a set of judges who were gods, divine judges and they stood uh, in front of the ju judges uh, with a balance and there are two pans in the balance 
one has the heart of the deceased person, the other one has a feather, and the feather represents truth. So the dead person was asked to recite something called the negative confession. I've not killed, I've not um, stolen, I've not done this, I've not done that. 42 statements declaring themselves to be innocent of crime or sin. And if they lied, the heart would weigh against them in the balance of truth, against the feather. At the end of the interrogation, uh, they, the judges would decide whether they were innocent and could go forward into the next world or whether uh, they were not innocent and their bodies would be thrown to this hybrid animal which is shown crouched at the side of the balance. So this very famous scene, which occurs on papyri as well, is very often found uh, on the coffins and it shows the deceased person having a successful day of judgment. Mm. Very interesting. This this uh, ancient religious practice, this tradition, um, is there a, a name for it that scholars use either the, that practice itself or more broadly does it fit inside of an ancient religion or a tradition it's the ancient egyptian uh, religion uh, it's it's the belief really of how you go from this world to the next and if you've lived a good life then you will go to the eternal life but if you haven't and there are ways of trying to get around that with magic so you try and cheat the gods in their decision but if you fail then you do not join up with your soul and go on into eternity so it's a crucial bit of their um their, their religious belief and mindset so uh takabudi's uh, coffin and her her life was benevolent benevolently endorsed that was the idea, yes. Yes, she had all the benefits of the coffin. And all these items, including the coffin and the mummy, when the burial took place, um, the priest would carry out a ceremony known as opening the mouth. And he would touch the mummy and the coffin on the mouth, the hands and the feet. And that would magically activate them, make them... Um, make it possible for them to work on behalf of the deceased throughout eternity. So according to their belief, that was the, um, the activation of the individual to go forward into the next life. The, uh, the writings on the, on the coffin, um, were they, um, I think you might have mentioned it earlier, were they hieroglyphs? Was it a different type of language? And can you uh, describe in the best way that you can the amount of writings in some kind of quantitative way so people can visualize what we're talking about in terms of the corpus on the, uh, on the, on the coffin itself? Yes, the, the inscriptions on the coffin are written in hieroglyphs, which was the sacred language of ancient Egypt used for some other things as well. But they are in, they're in hieroglyphic script. Uh, and I would say that probably something like, I don't know, maybe 50% of the coffin is inscription um, because the, the hieroglyphs themselves are decorative, they're magically effective, and so they both add to the, the design and the appearance of the coffin, but also, of course, the basic thing is that they have this magical significance and importance 
to uh, make the individual achieve eternal life. So if you look at a coffin, you see a lot of written uh, texts, inscriptions. Okay, and correct me if I'm if I'm wrong, but but is it presumed that um, her life and her as a person would have had to been revered in s some way, um, and or um, her family would have had to have means to be able to uh, have the hieroglyphs um, actually created in the first place? Because hieroglyphic writing, it wasn't a, a common day. Not everybody in e ancient Egypt were uh, literate with hieroglyphic writing so you know what i'm getting at is it is is there yes. some uh can you infer a little bit about um how venerated she was and or her family's means just because there was actually hieroglyphic writing on the coffin yes the stylistic criteria on the coffins including the the, the writing give you some idea of where the person was in the social status so the, the, the most elaborate coffins, of course, are royal, the best workmen. Uh, then you gradually go down the line. Um, Takabuchi's coffin, uh, in stylistic terms, would place her somewhere in the lower middle end of the, um, of the upper classes. Uh, it's not the best, uh, but it's by no means the worst. And you, of course, got what you paid for. Uh, so if the family was well off, then they could employ um, artists who were uh, with varying degrees of competence to, to do this. Okay, uh, closing question, Rosalie. How do you think Takabuti, either the life she lived and or um, the actual discovery from a scholarly perspective should best be remembered? I think the life she lived, we can remember her as somebody who lived at this uh, this crossroads of history where you have the Assyrians and the Kushites fighting is she caught up in the midst of this uh, this troubled period so she stands out in that way um, she's also interesting because her ethnicity uh, suggests she was part of this great mixture of different types of people who were living in Egypt at that time. So she's unusual, uh, but she's also part of a long historical story. And uh, in terms of the techniques that have been used, of course, they've been applied to this particular mummy. But what they do is to push the whole subject of biomedical Egyptology uh, that step further forward uh, into what we will be able to do uh, in, in, in the future with, with other mummified remains. This was a great episode. Thanks for coming on the show, Rosalie, and uh, having this conversation today. Thank you. Okay, everybody, the book again that Dr. David wrote that's very germane to this conversation, Life and Times of Takabuti in Ancient Egypt, Investigating the Belfast Mummy. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Rosalie and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.